how does AI-powered test case generation revolutionize manual testing in the Salesforce ecosystem? What challenges do companies face when using AI to generate test cases and ensure contextual relevance? How does AI Cloud announcement impact your strategic planning and future roadmap? Welcome to Artificial Intelligence Innovations Meets App Exchange, the bi-weekly show that explores the impact of AI in the Salesforce ecosystem. I'm Jakub Stefaniak, Salesforce Certified Technical Architect and VP of Technology Strategy and Innovation at Akiva Labs, where we help App Exchange partners accelerate their adoption of the latest technologies and get the most out of their Salesforce partnership. In each episode, we sit down with leaders from App Exchange ecosystem to discuss the latest trends and innovation in AI, product development opportunities, and ethical considerations. Our goal is to address critical challenges faced by business, build a community of engaged professionals, and provide insights into the latest trends and innovation in AI to help you stay informed and ahead of the curve. So, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of AI and App Exchange. Hey, so thank you a lot for accepting our invitation. At the beginning, could you introduce both your product and yourself and your role in Salesforce ecosystem? Sure thing. So I'm Richard Clark. I'm Chief Strategy Officer at Provar. At Provar, we provide products for continuous quality. One of them on the App Exchange is a quality hub called Provar Manager, and it's for measuring your testing activity, scheduling your automation testing, whether that's unit tests or our functional tests. And, in, and gathering results from static analysis, et cetera. But people best know us traditionally as the first product and the only product built for test automation of Salesforce back in 2014. And we are one of those companies which are very active in AI ecosystem. Like a few weeks ago, you already organized a webinar about ChatGPT and GitHub Copilot for Salesforce developers. So I suppose that you have already some development in AI areas which are part of the product or part of your roadmap, right? That's right. And, and both of those things, I think everyone says they've either got AI or use AI. I'm always quite, I've resisted saying we had AI in our product for the first five years I was at ProBar because we had an algorithm and the algorithm was based on metadata and it was accurate. We didn't need AI. When GPT started to hit the masses and we started playing with it, we realized we could bake that into our product. And what we did is take user stories coming from Jira, apply GPT to it to generate test scenarios in BDD, so in the in the Cucumber language. So that was able to then take something we could then automate using our algorithm. And that's where we're going in the future is automating more of that process from requirement to do more sort of test-driven development, maybe. And the other thing we've done is leverage an AI a platform for test execution, parallel test execution in the cloud. And we've leveraged their orchestration that analyzes previous test behavior and says, these are the tests to run first because these are more likely to fail, either because they're new or because they always fail first. And your tests, your 80% of tests that always pass, which you could say, why do you bother running them? Sometimes with the client you have to, we run those later. And the idea being that if it breaks in the first hour, you can fix it rather than wait six, eight, 10, 12 hours to find out your test run failed and you can't, you have to roll back the release. Awesome, so it sounds like we're going to have two interesting topics to dive in. So maybe starting from the first one, because I suppose lots of Salesforce partners are asking very similar questions. How we can even speed up our manual testing by using AI to generate test cases. 
And the first question which came to my mind, probably you have like some very strict requirements how the user story is defined to get a reasonable test case, right? Could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so obviously the definition of user stories does tend to vary and the tools people use is varies. So the challenge we always have with these things is your testing is only as good and your, your development is only as good as the user story that's developed. There was a session I went to watch again from London's calling last week about writing good user stories. And when I think about the tools people are using, things like Jira, it's not that good at capturing acceptance criteria. It doesn't have a standard field for it. But when we take that and put it through AI, what we're able to do is it can analyze the text, wherever that's contained in the summary description, in the comments, if we want to, and it can make inferences around that. And that gives us the ability that that's where we create something like BDD, which is a more structured language, which says, given this, when this, and this, but this. And that gives us a much more uh, clinical structure and creating tests from BDD is much more precise, but it's still open to interpretation. So you still have to think about, yes, different scenarios. You still have to think about boundary conditions. And again, we can use AI or algorithms to say, these are all the variability that I need for my testing. And then on the reverse, when we've executed tests, whether that's manually or automated, you can analyze those results and say, what's the coverage I've got? What's interesting with Salesforce is because we've got metadata to describe a change as well, we can map that coverage against that metadata and say, when we add the account or sorry, lead status field, maybe we've added a new value, we can look at things like how many times is that used? We can look at things like, is it actually covered in our testing? And when that lead status is remote or whatever the value we've added, is that actually used? Does it actually convert to any opportunities? So there's some very interesting things you can use with these sort of analytics engines around the results of that testing. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like one of the benefits of having tool directly integrated with Salesforce, so you can probably pull lots of this metadata in an automatic way. But what about the project context and like amount of data which usually a good QA engineer used to generate tests. With standard OpenAI limit of tokens, you cannot just deliver everything good you have like in your Jira or like all your product backlog, right? And sometimes it means that, exactly. How, in this case, you make sure that all context is like available for generative AI. Yeah, so when it comes to generative AI, it's about using it for the right use case. So we've used it to analyze individual user use stories. If I was to give it the whole backlog, of a thousand user stories is just gonna it's never gonna process it i actually saw an example someone submitted as a bug where they'd concatenated six user stories in one to try and to get it to, i was like no that's never going to work this is the generative ai is being used as a human interaction it's not being used as a background process to go away and build everything when we generate things in the background we use an algorithm not ai for that because it's predictable we know it's a metadata field we know it's on this flexi page we know it's on this page layout. we know it's on it can be searched. We know what it's actually, it's editable or it's read-only, which profiles, that's all very structured and that's an algorithm. But for AI, that what it does is say, not every possible combination of testing is telling us if I've added a field, a checkbox, then I should be checking it's checked, not checked. And can it be null? Is it tri-state? That's just doing the thing that actually a tester should be thinking of themselves, but it just saves them time because they're not having to click a button saying, yeah, of course, those are the obvious scenarios.
Mm -hmm. So let me paraphrase. I understand that the test cases are then generated always in context of the single user story which we created, right? Does it mean that anyway you would expect that we have like senior QA or strong product owner who have like this big vision and full understanding of the product to cover, for example, some edge cases or think about some potential necessary regression which are not related to the user story itself, but because of knowledge of uh, different dependency in the project based on have gut feeling usually that something can break, right? Absolutely. So when we think about testing, it's not all ever going to be automated. If we think the early stages unit testing, and that's a, usually a developer, but actually could be a flow test on Salesforce as well, or it could be an apex test to test the flow. We're seeing that quite often as well. Those tests are generally about coverage, not always high quality. So yes, we can use other AIs or we can use static analysis tools to look at the quality of our unit tests. We then move on to functional tests. And yes, the more of those we can automate because they're part of the regression, that's good. But the very first time you're probably doing it as a manual test, which is why we have something called Test Builder lets you record that test and substitute all the literal values with functions. So like today plus one week, or the value is from a pick list and we make sure all those pick list values are covered. So we let people do that. But then when you move beyond that, you still have a level of exploratory testing. And that can even be, as you say, an experienced QA person being given a scenario. So you write a scenario saying, within this time window, say one hour, basically try and break this, okay? That is what good QA people are better at than anyone else, okay? When you make them follow a script, that's, that's not using their brain. When you ask them to break something, they'll find things that only a user could find. Okay, because it goes in production, you you can bet you've got a user who should have been a QA person and will find that problem. And we call that exploratory testing. Unfortunately, it often gets hidden by people saying, oh, let's do user acceptance testing. And too many projects, I think you've experienced this, user acceptance means they just ask you, what should I test? And that's not right. Of course, yes. And it exactly sounds like usually as PDO pattern have like two types of ISVs coming to us in request about testing. One, when somebody see that manual testing setting to be time consuming and they are looking for some guidance how to make. But the second scenario are these big ISVs who like spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on making lots of automations. And then they're asking why it is so slow and what can I do to like speed it up? And I believe like the second use case which you describe about this AI driven priorities is kind of solution to this, right? Absolutely. So what we did is rather than build our own infrastructure, because we're not infrastructure experts, we're not AWS experts. It takes a long time to get that experience. So we've partnered with someone who has an existing platform that lets us create, if you want 500 tests in parallel, you can do that. That's not going to be cheap. But at the moment, that would let you do that. And it, as you say, it lets you pick out to run which tests and wallet to break. The other thing we've been doing with not just AI, but algorithms is working out a test plan. So we talked about the different stages of life cycle. I don't want to run my whole regression pack when I'm just promoting to integration tests necessarily. So what we've done is what we call level two integration with things like Capado, Flowsome, DevOps Center, that's what I was talking about, London's calling, to pick out which metadata has changed and only create a test plan around that metadata. And that's an interesting area that helps people do that. And as you say, when you do want to do regression testing or you've got a regulatory compliance need in insurance or government or financial uh, in um, healthcare, 
then you probably want to run that whole pack every night and you don't want to take 12 hours and that being able to scale that up to a point you need is exciting for our customers to get that feedback and really enable proper CICD. Too often testing is the poor child of CICD. You look at someone's process and you find the only testing they're doing is rerunning unit tests and they're complaining mm. it takes too long. Well, we won't have that problem. If you've got 500 tests, you can have each one on a separate container if you want to. There's probably a balance where it's probably more likely you do 50 containers and each one runs 10 tests and it takes 15 minutes. There's probably an acceptable level depending mm -hmm. on your CI/CD process and your release strategy of how, how many containers you want to use to speed that up. Sure, that makes lots of sense. Talking about the test itself, do you have already some problems with hallucination on generic quality of this generated output? Or how do you tackle these problems? We haven't seen that yet. I mean, obviously, we template what we pass. We're not giving people a free form. Mm -hmm. There are some tools that have added conversational AI onto their product, almost to say, do this. And I find that a bit strange. It's almost like a AI washing, let's call it that, their application. Maybe they've got a bad user experience, I don't know. So what we've done is, is use templates to prompt and structure and where necessary to say segment the content. We haven't yet seen the results that are showing any sort of sort of bias, but that's something we've got to monitor. That's something mm -hmm. we will have to be aware of and be careful about. And those, mm. The hallucination, yeah, it does happen in development sense. Yes, we saw that. Right. If you give ChatGPT, even GPT-4, a, and I did this last week because... I couldn't deploy something for my DevOps Center demo because of some code about unit mm -hmm. tests. So I took that code, threw it in GPT, said, generate me using best practice or URA expert Salesforce developer, generate me a unit test for this Apex class following best practice. And it gave me a test with all the setup in there. And I said, no, use this using test setup. And it generated me with a test setup and it had a new at test teardown. I'm like, what the hell? That doesn't exist. I thought, that's ridiculous. It's doing deletes and things. And I thought, yeah, but that is best practice. It doesn't know that Salesforce is going to do the deletes for me, that it's not going to commit the changes. But isn't that a better idea that we actually do control? So it made me think, saying, yes, it was hallucinating. But I thought, they're probably right. That is better than the way we do it today, where we just rely on the system to clear up after us. It was interesting. Mm -hmm. But um, I understand that at the end, with the current approach, you always are going to have like the human going through the test cases generated by AI, making like the final decisions plus some adjustment, right? Like there is no plan at this moment to be able to just put the user story and have like fully automated output, which is going to like just work without supervision. There is a plan, but I think for all the reasons you mentioned, hallucination, bias, and if we think about the ethics and the data governance and GDPR rules, et cetera, what's interesting is what Salesforce announced yesterday with the data cloud, with it, sorry, AI cloud using data cloud, how they're anonymizing data, how they're ensuring there's no storage of that, no ephemeral storage of that data, and how they tokenize it is quite interesting. So, yes, there is, but I can't talk about it yet. <laughs> So that solution, I need to understand the pricing is available by ISV. So yes, I do want to automate all that. But right now, I think the important thing is for us to make sure we've got a human interaction to speed up the person. And when we're comfortable that the results of that are accurate or accurate enough to people's needs, more accurate than employing an extra developer or an extra tester, then I think I do want to automate all that. We already have 
generation things can take. Analysis for metadata from all can generate a bunch of test cases that do all the standard page layouts and flex pages. That's great, or all the API calls, but that's not an end-to-end -end test case. That's 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 really just a mm -hmm. glamorous functional unit test. What I want to do is understand how does the user use an application? What's the journey they take to the application? Okay, that takes a lot of training. Take that training, layer on the variability, and then we have data-driven test cases, not with lots of test cases, but with lots of data records that fire that test case off. That's where I want to get to, but we're not going to see that in 12 months. Of course. And it sounds like when you are thinking about your long-term plans and your roadmap, you already have some assumptions in mind. And you recently changed your role from Chief Product Officer, officer to Chief Strategy Officer. I'm curious if you can give us some hints how exactly then you are working on the roadmap. So how you check the existing trends, get into the knowledge and include it in your strategic planning? So the shift is one that's kind of really just separation of the role I used to do. So before I was chief product officer, I was chief technology officer, actually in between of chief innovation officer. So from coming from a startup, program was a startup 2014, I joined in 2017, but I was there at the start in 2013 before the company was founded at a UK platinum partner, Make Positive, where I was CTO and I saw the product and thought, this is what we need to use on our product projects and our products. I was in charge of both. So I've always had that strategic, more commercial side to me as a CTO. Really, when it comes to our product roadmap, I've had this vision from 2017 and we've been trying to deliver against that vision. One of the frustrations for me as CTO and CPO has been I have the control of the finances for that. So in my new role, my role is to actually unlock and unblock reasons why there are certain things we haven't done yet. So that is looking at ways in which how can we speed up our internal processes? Uh, how can I remove all these blockers I experienced? So when it comes to product, I'm more following the same product vision, working with our VP of product and with our CTO to say, we agree what it is we need to do, providing them more information, listening to the market more, and providing what is it people are asking for? What is it, where are our competitors going? I'm doing more on the analysis side now about how we fit the market. Whereas before I was doing more about, this is obviously what we need to do, and this is the priority. Now I'm influencing that more and saying, right, this is the resources we have. This is the extra resources I can get. These are the partners we can work with to accelerate this feature in our roadmap. So it's, it's a slight shift more externally facing. Okay, and talking about partners, Yesterday, Salesforce hosted the AI Day and announced AI Cloud. I'm curious how this announcement is making impact on your decisions and vision. It's um, something I'm excited to try and adopt. So the graphics that were displayed, the information they talked about, the way they're masking data is exciting, the way they're providing multiple AI sources. I think the reality is we all want to see that, one, it, it actually works. <laughs> That's kind of a... Yeah, we've been told about it, it's, it's come to market very quickly, like data cloud. So I think that's key, but because we've got all our test repository, our program manager application as an ISV application, and we know Salesforce ultimately gonna move off their Oracle databases into data cloud, so that we're not having to move data around, have multiple copies of data, that's gonna allow us to then use that to help train our own large language models, and to make sure those models are not generic, 
about all customers and not shared their data, but actually specific to a particular customer, the particular testing they're doing. So I find it very exciting. The, the caveat is we don't really know the ISV pricing yet. We've, it's been announced that ISVs can also adopt this. We saw a figure of 360,000 for 50 enterprise sales mm-hmm. CRM licenses, 50 MuleSoft and whatever else was in there and some professional services. That isn't what I want. What I want is something very different to that. So we need to see where OEM and ISV packages from Salesforce go over the next few weeks. So yes, I 100% following up with our partner account manager and seeing where that's going to go. Definitely. And at this moment, you're using just directly OpenAI API to generate generative AI, right? So we are in our product, we give people the option of putting in their account details currently only for yeah, OpenAI API, but we will expand that in the future. But internally, we're using other AIs as well. So yeah, things mm-hmm. like I think you mentioned um, Copilot. Okay, so does it mean that as a customer, as part of provider configuration, I'm expected to bring my own OpenAI key? Is it correct? At the moment, yes, and that's why it's interesting what Salesforce are doing is saying, look, we'll take care of that. The question then comes, what is the usage? How can I cap usage? And OpenAI API is kind of a prepay scheme at the moment. You put a certain amount in a month. It's not unlimited. It's not like getting an AWS bill and going, someone's running a Bitcoin mining process mm-hmm. on our server and getting a surprise bill. It's not doing that. It's more like the early days of sending SMS messages when you had to buy credit upfront to send those messages. So yes, we're looking at that. We're looking at the usage of that. If there's a way to partner with OpenAI and commercialize that, that would be great. But at the moment, they're, they're, they are still very early in their commercial launch. So it's only recently been able to buy access to GPT-4, for example. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, and frankly speaking, it's something new for me because, like, at least doing internal research and development, we are paying as we go for spends, right? But does it mean that there is some maximum limit how much you can, as a serious company with many end customers, like spend per month, and then you are going to be blocked? If that that's that a challenge, certainly. And then when you think they're reusing that, if they're using the same API account. For Elements Cloud, for Provar, mm-hmm. for Capado, for whoever else has got an API integration, who's used all the capacity? So the reporting needs to get a bit smarter. But this is because it's the early days. So I okay. think most of us that we've launched features, those features are demonstrable. Do we have customer adoption of those features yet? One. And of course, it's our friendly, friendly customer is using it. But that's so we can have a case studies, etc. So I think there's still a lot to do on that. And that's why, again, I think the Einstein GPT AI cloud is interesting because Salesforce is saying, don't worry about that. And But none of us have seen those governor limits. <laughs> what do you mean, don't worry about it? There will definitely be governor limits in there somewhere or fair usage or something. And there should be to stop people doing lazy development or lazy solutions that make multiple API calls when they could really use one. Yeah, definitely. So I believe we are all waiting for Dreamforce to hear more about this. But then, of course, it would be a question that, as you said, being OEM and ISV usually means that they are not first priority on the list, right? Maybe, but I can see here, maybe this is different because Salesforce have moved more to being the platform. They've provided their solutions for sales, service, Slack, uh, Tableau, etc. I feel like this is different. And because they've said, look, we've got these multiple AI models we support, we'll pick the one that's most appropriate for your query. 
I'd like to see that work and I'd like to understand because as you know, the cost difference between even on GPT between the different levels, was it Da Vinci, was the mm-hmm. A? I always remember the A, B, D, A, B, C, D because I can't remember the artist names of you. Different models, the, yeah. The mm-hmm. difference is, is huge in terms of cost, but also the results are different. So what we all tend to do is use the most expensive option at the moment to get the best results. There is a point where we all need to say, actually, this having this layer in between that actually understands what you're trying to ask and which is the best model or the most cost-effective model is necessary. Perfect. Thank you a lot for this insight. And I hope we are going to have another opportunity to speak again soon. After Salesforce, uh, we'll make all this thing GA. And then I would love to hear how provide adapt to the new reality. Thank you a lot. Thank you, Jakob. Thank you so very much for tuning into this episode of AI Innovations Meets App Exchange. We hope you enjoyed the insightful discussion and found this episode valuable. To stay updated on our latest episodes, be sure to sign up for our newsletter and never miss a beat. If you have any questions or want to engage with us further, we'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Until next time, keep exploring the exciting world of AI and app exchange.